Hi, welcome to PH Dizzle. I'm your host, Alice Chen, and today we are interviewing Amiel Moreno, who got her BS, a dual degree in biology and psychology from the University of Washington, and her PhD in neuroscience from Emory University, and she's currently a science communicator. start with your scientific journey. So you ended up in neuroscience, but you started out, I guess psychology, I kind of see the connection there, but psychology and biology. So maybe tell me a little bit about um, what inspired you to get your PhD, and then we can talk a little bit about the PhD research you did. Yeah, sure. Uh, I took my sweet ass time. I <laughs> like to slowly inch into something to make sure that the water is comfortable. I got into biology in high school and I knew I wanted to do something around that. But then I took a course that wasn't even called neuroscience yet. It was called biopsychology. Mm. And it really was a neuroscience course where I just fell in love with how psychology and biology overlap in this neuroscience area, how we can explain these diverse behaviors that people have down to the connections that are occurring in this lump of, of tissue in our skull. That was uh, so fascinating to me. And so how did you transition then and decide to do a PhD? Like, were you doing research at that time? I had a longer journey than that uh, when I was graduating from undergrad, I thought that it would be nice to work in a field of biology where I'd be dealing with the physiology level, but also be my own boss. So I went into chiropractic mm. medicine. I applied to schools and got in, but I deferred for a year so that I could work with a chiropractor. What I found was that this person that I was working for was just selling snake oil. He wasn't helping anyone. This wasn't an environment that, that appreciated science. And I was basically fired for asking too many questions. Aww. Yeah. And I had been, I just come out of, you know, these high level biology courses where you are primed to ask questions and know more in, in a way to understand. And then this environment where you have to believe or the magic doesn't work. I found didn't click for me. I understand not all chiropractor, hashtag not all chiropractors, but this one just soured me to it. So I knew I needed to find an environment where it was okay to be myself and that's an inquisitive person. Mm -hmm. So I started working in a lab that uh, dealt with uh, chemistry. I didn't like that everything was dead. And so I knew I wanted to move to a biology lab and I knew I loved neuroscience. So I started working in a neuroscience lab at the University of Washington, go Huskies. There I studied uh, the retina and got to play with squirrel monkeys hmm. and mice. I did uh, behavior training and I did cellular work, which was both of my interests in, in psych and biology, looking at these larger behaviors and then the, the small molecules and proteins that could possibly be um, the cause, the root cause of those behaviors. The reason I applied for grad school is um, I really always had this voice in my head that said, um, it's not good enough, do more. And so I knew if I had stopped at undergrad, I just wouldn't feel 
like I accomplished enough. And if I went to a master's program, I would always be telling myself, but you could have gotten a PhD. So I just, you know, had that drive in, in me to go to the highest level that I could. And it was the biggest challenge of my life. It is <laughs> so draining and demoralizing and challenging. Also, you get to dream big because you are eventually you know, deep in the PhD, testing your own ideas and getting you know results that say that you're wrong a lot. <laughs> I got to study hormones, which yeah. are so fascinating because they are these little molecules able to change your behavior and uh, potentially have bigger effects on learning and memory. And I got to work with female mice which is sometimes rare in research that we get to look at a, a female model organism instead of males. So that was really important to me that I, I brought in our understanding of uh, female biology and um, brain and then hormones. I got to work with uh, brilliant people. I was the dumbest person in the room and I like it like that. I'm really glad you were honest about your experience, about the ups and the downs. I'm really happy you made it through, and I think there's a lot of things that happen in grad school that aren't talked about. People are more open to discussing it now, but things that- Mostly what isn't talked about is the crying. There's a <laughs> lot of crying in grad school. Oh. I. I drew this little cartoon that was um, somebody sh giving a lab tour and saying, oh, this is the, the dark room. Uh, we use this to you know, develop pictures of our gels. Um, but mostly people go in there to cry. And then the other person <laughs> says, is that a sign-up sheet? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it really does feel like that. My PI was a physicist. He got to work with a, another physicist who had transitioned into understanding auditory cues, basically how we hear. And uh, the model that he was looking at was in mice so that we can study the various areas in the mouse brain where uh, sound is understood. And eventually that leads to one of the uh, final areas of processing sound, which is the auditory cortex. And it's here that it's theorized memories of sounds might be held. There are a couple of instances of learning sounds when you're a child. And we know that the brain is, during development, is very plastic and able to learn and pick up new cues. During adulthood, there aren't as many instances of intense learning and uh, changes of behavior, except when you're dealing with moms. Mm. A mother mouse has transitioned from a state of being naive to babies and to the, their stimuli, their smell, their sound, to a state where they're very familiar with it and incredibly responsive. There's this behavior that they'll immediately do, which is caretaking and uh, grooming and uh, feeding and responding to sounds. So during the you know post-pregnancy and early care, moms have to rapidly learn a new sound, the sound of their pups, and know that that's important. Mm -hmm. And if they don't learn, the chances of their pups, their babies surviving is gonna go down. So here's an instance of, of plasticity, of learning in not only a, a female brain, but a adult brain, which is extra interesting. And 
because the idea of my thesis was that the hormones that are involved with pregnancy might aid in that plasticity and the learning of uh, these social cues. If I'm going to think about how this could apply to uh, other populations, uh, eventually we might be able to understand the mechanisms that the hormones enact mm. and no longer need actual hormones to enact plasticity. And, you know, this would be a, a far into the future aspect of this research. Or there's something that's very real and present in females when they age. As a woman gets older and uh, she loses estrogen, she's going through menopause and there's a lot of cognitive decline associated with the loss of those hormones. So if we could provide the, the aspect of hormones that help in cognitive processing without actually using hormones, that would be really helpful because the yeah. hormones have a lot of other side effects to them. Yeah. Uh, that aren't ideal. A lot of the science I know is trying to understand a problem, how to prevent decline, like you were talking about, you know, as mm -hmm. people get older. I think it's so fascinating that study, the topic that you studied during your PhD of this, um, it's like an, in, like an enhancement in their cognitive ability that just mm -hmm. happens naturally, right? Like biology is so cool. Normally people are like, okay, biology, we gotta fix this. It's like a cancer or something. <laughs> But in some cases, it's really cool and your body naturally does this for you and it's an evolutionary thing, right? Because you can't survive or your kids won't be able to survive if you can't take care of them. Yeah, in science, there's two different types of studies. There's basic science and then there's disease form science. Basic science research is uh, addressing a system that we want to know more about that isn't necessarily associated with a, a diseased state. Mm. In, in this case, um, my research is a basic science in that the implication as a result of the research being completed is to know more, just to, to know more about this system. It's been so nice to have you explain some of these things, which I think segues into the next part, which makes sense because you are in science communication. No way! <laughs> it, this started not just recently, right? Like it started back in grad school. So tell me about how you got into science communication. Well, I found myself uh, having the most fun in grad school when I was writing. We luckily had this uh, program newsletter, an online blog, uh, that would uh, have stories written by the students about the program or about research. And um, I found myself having so much fun putting together little creative articles with uh, fun pictures and captions and trying to model it after like Cracked or uh, other mm -hmm. popular at the time websites that, that dealt with uh, providing information. I don't know if every female experiences this, but I, I like to say that as a female, I can tell when people stop listening to me. Mm. And I can see a glaze kind of go over the eyes when yeah. a female voice has been talking for too long. And when I notice that, I know I need to punch up things, wrap them up or engage the person. And that came across in my writing in that I would make sure to interject points of humor or interesting questions or interesting facts at a regular interval to like keep people engaged. I 
loved crafting them and I still go back and read some of my stuff and I, I still laugh at it. Going forward, I'm excited to get some more articles under my belt. I am taking this year to try my hand at uh, freelance science writing and communication. Awesome. I, yeah, yeah, I'm going to uh, create a website, which is just really difficult for me to think about. <laughs> but um, right now I am uh, working on my own podcast with a co-host. Yeah, it's another female comedian who has um, worked in neuroscience and she and I decided that we were going to do like a fun journal club. Mm. Uh, journal clubs usually where you uh, share recent papers that have come out in your field of interest and she's interested in behavior neuroscience as well. It's uh, called the Misbehavior Journal Club. Oh. Um, yeah, we're very excited about that. Okay, and is it going to be, so it's scientific, but is it communicated, it's like scientific but communicated to a lay audience? Is that the purpose? It's kind of a behind the scenes look at research. So we're going to be each episode uh, talking a little bit about science in the news that is you know, neuroscience related, and then we'll pick an article to share. And as we share it, we're kind of explaining, oh, that paradigm, oh my God, the mice, they just hate this. Or, you know, <laughs> oh, when that happens, I saw what they did with that outlier. They decided to keep it because it was going the right direction. It's kind of a scientist's take on these articles. So somebody who, doesn't know neuroscience, but is, is interested in, in yeah. what we, we know about the brain can enjoy it. But also grad students that are kind of in the trenches working on stuff being like, yes, there was something wrong with that antibody. Everybody, no. it, you know, <laughs> and so we hope it's enjoyable. So. <laughs> it's kind of like a no PIs allowed place. Yeah. How did you find your co-host? Well, we had uh, both done uh, science communication in Atlanta. I went to Emory. There is a big community around uh, the Atlanta Science Festival. And one of the shows that they decided to uh, fund and put on was a science comedy night. And so what they did is they asked for scientists to come in and they had uh, a couple workshops for us to learn how to present things comically and develop an act and then perform it on stage. I had already had some background in stand-up comedy, so I thought, great, I'm just gonna figure out a new way to talk about my research and interject comedy into it. So I got to go on stage, um, I think I've done it three times now, to discuss my research and what it's like to be a scientist and make very tasteless jokes at the same time. It was, <laughs> it's exactly what I'm happy with. So, okay, I think this is, I mean, this is great because it ties into one of your hobbies, which is on the comedy side, but tell me, mm -hmm. so I didn't know you had a background in stand-up either. So tell me how, I mean, like, how did you get, a, interested in comedy originally and now how do you weave that into your science communication i think it, again it all goes back to that my dear mother <laughs> uh, she, she believed that uh, children should be seen and not heard and um she also loved television and passed that love on to me and and mostly uh humorous shows if something wasn't funny or entertaining or witty uh it didn't hold her attention so that kind of got me into a performer's state 
even as a young girl, if I wanted her attention, I had to be interesting, engaging, and funny because that carried weight. Eventually, after listening to comics talk about comedy for a very long time, I thought, hey, I can do this, and mm -hmm. uh, took some courses and got up on stage a couple times. Wow. Do you have a favorite comedian? That's a great question. I don't have a one that stands out. I, I kind of, uh, you know, I'm in the butcher shop seeing how things get made. So it's hard to appreciate the the food that comes yeah. out of the book. Like, or, I can, or is there someone who inspires you in, in their methodology or something? Yeah, know, good question. Yeah, like terms. when I listen to uh, comedy, I can taste it and say like, oh, they did that type of approach. Okay. Mm. Oh, it looks like, yeah, they took that topic and twisted it that way. And I can find all the elements. If I could think of one person who inspired me the most, I think I would say it was uh, Pete Holmes. Okay. He uh, had a talk show for a little bit. He has a longstanding podcast that um, I listened to hours of. He let me know that you can be very human on stage and being human on stage is a good thing. Mm -hmm. you, you can present yourself as somebody that you're not, but if you come to it with your own voice and perspective, it'll read so much better to the audience and make your jokes funnier once they understand who you are and they can tell who you are from what you write. Yeah, and I, I guess I'm no expert on comedy, but from what I've seen even over on TV, Mm -hmm. It seems like it's evolved from this like slapsticky, right? I mean, like back in the day, right? Black and white, because you can't do very much. So it's kind of slapsticky. And today it's more like it's funny, but really the best punchlines really make you think and maybe are a commentary on society or a political topic or something like that. And um, people like that. And I, I don't know if it's just our media has evolved, but I, I do think people like getting deeper than just being like, oh, haha, that guy fell on a banana. In the Middle Ages, the only people that were allowed to tell the truth to the king and to the court was the gesture. Mm. It was only the comedian who was allowed to to speak and see, say what was really true. And just through the act of doing that, they were able to produce laughter because everybody knows it, but no one's saying it. Mm -hmm. And that's where I see the parallel between science and comedy is that they both tell the truth and sometimes at the detriment of themselves. You know, scientists can get in trouble for telling the truth because it's not popular and, and comedians can too. Both science and comedy get the world to face what is real. And um, I appreciate that in both of those art forms. So I have a question about in terms of stage fright. So I know mm. some people actually hate being in front of other people performing and they have to get over it. It sounds like maybe you were naturally like a performer, but did you ever have to get over that? Like, do you ever feel uh, scared when you have to go perform in front of people? Oh, I'm terrified. Yeah. yeah. It, I don't, I don't get over it. No, there's not for me, at least I'm always in the back. I'm trying to channel Eminem so that like, I'm like pumping myself up mom <laughs> spaghetti style and trying to like 
be brave and see myself on that stage. It's really helpful when you can't see the audience. When there's like lights everywhere, you can just pretend that you're in your living room and doing things. Uh, but when I was presenting science, like when I was presenting my research, I was just always terrified and I'd get like this tremor in my voice. And I actually had to pull from my stand-up experience and bring it more into my science presentation so that I could have the confidence that, that I needed to be able to present clearly and in a manner that uh, would communicate what I wanted to say. So now that you're done with your PhD, you are the smartest person in the room 99.9% .9 of the time. So how does it feel? It's depressing. I don't, <laughs> I don't like it. I, I, I miss academia for the intelligent people. Um, definitely. I, I luckily have very smart friends and People think you're the smartest person in the room, but you just know, I mean, I just know a lot about one thing and pretty much nothing about anything else still. And you are so wrong. Let me tell you, right now. you are so, so wrong. I, I guarantee you, if you versus another person are presented with something where you have to problem solve, you have to get from point A to point B, that because you have pushed your mind to be able to understand very abstract or esoteric ideas and, and been able to uh, generate ways to answer very difficult questions that nobody else has tried to do yet, you know, like on the cutting edge, I guarantee you, you're gonna get to point B faster than the other person. Mm -hmm. I've seen that a lot in my life. Uh, I noticed it a little bit at the end of grad school, but after I got my PhD, I realized just that m mantra that they kept on telling us that like, oh, these are, you know, like problem solving skills that you're learning that you'll take into your life. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can solve problems that other people can't. And that makes me sound really conceited so i don't know no. if you want to include that but i hung a set of curtains like a goddamn master i was just like <laughs> drilling with that drill i was like all right here are the tools here's the problem here's how i'm going to present it and um and i really impressed my mother so there yeah no i actually love putting together ikea furniture i like it's very and i have this like engineering background too so it's just yeah. soothing to like put things together but i will say Getting to the first layer of that, of like, what are tools? Like, I feel like there's certain things that I just like missed because I was so zoned in on my education that there's just like life things that I'm relearning. But you're right. I think there is a general problem skills, problem solving skill set. It is overgeneralized where people are like, oh, I can problem solve. That it's not because <laughs> you're always trying to like get yourself into a job by problem solving. But it is true. It's so true. We're really good. We've got like very expensive brains. <laughs> That's right. Please pay me for my brain. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now that you've made it out of your PhD, would you do it again? Yes, because I had to uh, for myself. And if you are on the, the edge and not knowing if you should, then you shouldn't. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld used to have an approach whenever somebody came to him and asked oh you know wow i really uh like your your comedy i i think i want to be a stand-up comic too and jerry seinfeld would say no you can't do it 
and basically that would end the conversation. And his idea behind that was it would scare off anybody who was just on the fence. But somebody who really did want to become a stand-up comic would ignore him and still do it anyways. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what um, PhD programs need to present. It's going to be one of the hardest things that you ever do in your life. And if you have to do it for yourself, then you're gonna find yourself in a PhD program or a master's program. But if you're just thinking about it as a way to kill the next five years of your life, it's not for you. And you might just flunk out anyways. So only the most dedicated, only the people who can't fail for themselves should attempt doing a, a graduate program. The point of this content is not to convince people to do a PhD. It's to show the diversity of PhDs. And honestly, I think there's also a lot of financial uh, considerations people need to think about as well. It's five, at least five years where you're not getting paid at all or not getting paid very much. Uh, and depends on what you want to do after that. It might not even be relevant. True, true. Yeah. You do end up with a very expensive brain afterwards. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we have to figure out how to monetize our brains. I feel like that maybe that is the problem now. So, <laughs> PH Dizzle. Having fun with smart people who do cool things. <laughs>